In just a few moments, we'll be launching a sermon series, What the Bible is All About. Uh, We did the Old Testament portion of that last fall, and uh, we're excited to launch this morning uh, the New Testament part of that because we've sensed a hungering and sort of a longing for people to know how God's overarching story fits together and uh, our place in it. Uh, Before I read the scripture, I'd I'd like to invite us to add a worship practice to our every Sunday experience. In many congregations, uh, this happened in the Baptist World Congress uh, in South Africa, but in many congregations stateside, uh, after scripture is read, the reader will say the word of the Lord, or uh, may God bless the reading of his word, or the word of God for the people of God, or some phrase like that, and the people will respond, thanks be to God. That's our way of acknowledging that our hearts are open and that we are grateful for the food that scripture provides us. The pastor or the reader says, the word of God for the people of God, the people respond, thanks be to God. And we want to start doing that, and I felt like the perfect time to do that was in this series on what the Bible is all about, because I'm coming to a brand new appreciation of how much scripture means to me and to us, and how central it is to our worship. And so let's practice that before I read the scripture this morning. After I read the scripture, I will say, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. That was pretty good. Better back here because they, uh, he practiced at home. Rod practiced at home. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You got it. Okay, now, Luke chapter 7 is this morning's scripture. This morning's focus uh, is the four gospels. As we think about what the Bible is all about, we look at the first four books and we think about what, what they're really trying to say. And this is a great scripture to launch us. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. Listen carefully. John's disciples reported back to him the news of all these events taking place. He sent two of them to the master, that is to Jesus, to ask the question, Are you the one we've been expecting, or are we still waiting? The men showed up before Jesus and said, John the baptizer sent us to ask you, Are you the one we've been expecting, or are we still waiting? In the next two or three hours, Jesus healed many from diseases, distress, and evil spirits. To many of the blind, he gave the gift of sight. Then he gave this answer. Go back and tell John what you have just seen and heard. The blind see. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The wretched of the earth have God's salvation, hospitality, extended to them. Is this what you were expecting? Then count yourselves fortunate. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As we begin to think about the story of the Bible and what it's all about, if you recall last fall when we ended the series, we ended with the Israelites in exile. They'd been led away into cruel uh, captivity, away from their homeland. And when they came back to their homeland, trickling back, not all at once, but trickling back, many, many years later, they found the world very different. And I want to show you a timeline on the screen that will hopefully help you in uh, getting some of this perspective, because it's a little bit hard to grab unless you have some context. Uh, The uh, Hebrew people started trickling back to their land in the 500s B.C., uh, 400s B.C., and that was the beginning of the classical Greek period, 
uh, the Greek period of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Alexander the Great, 500 to 323 B.C. Around 400 B.C. is when scholars date the end of the Old Testament era, the end of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, there, there entered then sort of about five, uh, 400 years of silence. Uh, in the middle of all of that, 146 B.C., an ominous event, Rome conquers Greece. Rome begins to establish itself as a, as a presence everywhere. Julius Caesar, uh, ruling 100, uh, living in that period, 100 to 44 B.C. And then Jesus Christ's birth in 4 B.C. Now, don't ask me how Jesus Christ was born four years before Christ. Uh, that's, that's just a dating uh, it, they were off a little bit, you know, give them a little credit. It was just a timing mechanism thing that didn't work out right. But for our historical purposes, Jesus was born 4 B.C. His public ministry occurred 26 to 30 B.C. His crucifixion, his resurrection under the rule of Tiberius Caesar from 14 to 37 A.D. And I want you to notice at the bottom that the Gospels, that our focus of attention this morning, were written and collected Roughly the year 65 to 85 A.D., and I want you to notice that they uh, were starting to be collected just a few years after Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, and at the time when the early apostles were still alive, the eyewitnesses of Jesus were still alive, at least the early portion of that, of that last dating. And the point is that as the apostles, the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and death and resurrection... As those apostles began to age and die off, the early church realized they needed a witness, a testimony to uh, the risen Christ and the difference that he made in lives, and so the Gospels began to be collected. So that's sort of a, a rough overview of, uh, we've left a lot out, and for discussion purposes, you know, we just didn't have time, but that'll give you an idea. Now, there are four Gospels at the beginning of our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are... Uh, unique pieces of literature. They are not biography. Uh, you know, a biography says, you know, when Jesus was 13 uh, uh, to age uh, 18, he did this. And from ages 19 to 22, he did this. And then he moved there. It's not biography, nor is it memoir. Uh, this is not, the four Gospels are not written by Jesus. They're written about Jesus. And those are important things for us to remember. The, the best way to describe the kind of literature that the, uh, that the four Gospels would represent is to simply say that the four Gospels are proclamation. That is to say, uh, they are announcing the good news of Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. And so, when I say open to the uh, gospel of Luke, I could have easily have said, open to the good news of Luke, because that's what the word gospel means. And another way to say that would be to simply say this, that the ultimate purpose of the gospels is not information. Now, granted, we learn a lot of information from the four gospels, but the ultimate goal of the four gospels is not information, but transformation. It is the goal of the gospels to change lives in the power of Jesus Christ, and so they have a very evangelistic, a very proclamation purpose, a, a transformation as a purpose, and, and that's, that's the first thing we have to understand about those Gospels. And uh, I like what Adam Hamilton has said about 
this whole experience of looking at the written scripture during the first decades after the resurrection of Jesus, before the Bible, the New Testament, was collected, during the first decades after the resurrection of Jesus, the New Testament was not a book but a person, Jesus Christ. See, there was, they didn't carry around New Testaments. They were living it. And so the early decades after Jesus' resurrection, the good news, the New Testament, was not a book. It was a person, Jesus Christ. And another place, Adam Ham- Hamilton says that when God got ready to touch the world, he didn't send a book. He sent his son. A book was written about him, but when God cared, uh, God sent his son. And when Jesus came and lived, he didn't write a book, he gave his life. And when Jesus gave his great commission just before he ascended back to heaven, he didn't say to his disciples, write a book. He said, go and make disciples, make followers of me. And so it's all about Jesus. Uh, For years I've had this anonymous quote, I don't know who uh, first made this statement, the gospels do not explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains the gospels. See, the Gospels are not some kind of scientific evidence of how somebody could come back from the dead. The Gospels are not trying to make some kind of logical presentation how a person can turn water into wine. Uh, the Gospels are, are there because of the, the miracle of the resurrection. The Gospels don't explain the resurrection. The resurrection explains the Gospels. We have the Gospels because this amazing supernatural person lived and loved and died on the cross for our sins, and yet death could not conquer him, and he came back and conquered everything. And they said, we have just got to write this down because nothing like this and nothing like him has ever happened on the face of the earth. So the Gospels are Jesus. And the resurrection is, is, the, is the trigger to why all of this was written. Now, you will notice... If you have read any of the New Testament, you will notice that they don't all agree all the time on details. They vary in their perspective, and they do that because God used human personalities of the writers. They had a particular audience. They had a particular uh, goal in mind. They had a particular uh, something they wanted to establish about the uniqueness of Jesus, and their perspectives were all very different. I have a friend who pastors a church who was preaching a sermon sort of like this one. Uh, And during the worship service before his sermon, he had a retired FBI agent come sit on the platform with him, and they sat in chairs, and my friend interviewed this retired FBI agent. He said, I want to ask you, uh, if you were doing an investigation and four eyewitnesses said exactly the same thing, using exactly the same verbiage, the exact same phraseology, the exact same word choice, in exactly the same order, what would you think? And that FBI agent said, I would think that there was collusion and fabrication. In other words, they got together and got their story straight, and they were making stuff up. Because if you hear four eyewitnesses say exactly the same thing, you can bet it was rehearsed. Some people want to say to me that the differences in the gospel prove that the Bible is not God's word, and I want to say just the opposite, that it's proof that it is God's word, that it's authentic, that it's real, that it's genuine, that it's, that it's God-breathed, and that God allowed these different personalities to share different perspectives 
and different highlights of different purposes as they wrote to different audiences. So the truth is there, embedded in that honesty of Scripture that allows for differing perspectives. This might be a good time to just mention, since we're talking about the Gospels, sometimes people will email me or, or uh, visit with me about um, questions about later so-called Gospels, like the Gospel according to Thomas or the Gospel according to Judas. Um, and uh, one of the things you need to know is that those so-called Gospels are not in our canon of Scripture. The word canon means measuring stick or measuring rod. Those so-called Gospels are not in our collection or our canon of Scripture for one reason, because they appear relatively later than do the four Gospels in our collection of Scripture, in our canon. You see, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do you remember those dates that I had on the screen a moment ago? They appeared while the eyewitnesses were still alive, and as they began to die off, they appeared just years after Jesus' earthly ministry. They appeared early enough that by the early 2nd century, we're talking the 100s A.D., by the early 2nd century, the New Testament church was quoting the Gospels as authoritative. They weren't collected yet in a bound book, not for another couple of hundred years. But the New Testament churches were quoting the Gospels, these four, as authoritative. They're rooted in history. They're rooted in real events. Now, by contrast, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of some of the others, uh, appeared much later, farther from the events. And here's the other reason that I believe they're not authoritative and not in our canon of Scripture. They present a very different picture of Jesus. The Jesus pictured uh, in some of those so-called Gospels is not the Jesus of the four Gospels and Paul's writing and Peter and James's writing, and not even the Jesus that would be reflected from much of the Old Testament. For example, in the Gospel according to Thomas, Jesus is a boy, and he's playing with clay birds, that is, toys, uh, a pretend bird made out of clay. And Jesus, as a boy, decides he's, I don't know, bored. He wants, he wants something different happening. He breathes life into the clay birds, and they come to life. Sort of sounds self-serving, doesn't it? There's another account in the Gospel according to Thomas when Mary and Joseph's next-door neighbors are arguing. And I guess the boy Jesus doesn't like to listen to that because the Gospel of Thomas says he strikes those neighbors blind. Does that sound like the Jesus you know from Scripture? That Jesus would use his power for selfish purposes when he's bored or wants to see something novel? That Jesus would throw his weight around and punish people because they were in irritation? The Jesus we know from Scripture came to serve and to seek the lost. The Jesus we know talked about giving life away and living unselfishly. And so... Uh, that leads us, by the way, to the text for this morning, the, John, the uh, Luke chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 18, the scripture that we, that we were talking about earlier. The, uh, the disciples of John the Baptist, and by the way, John the Baptist, uh, Jesus' cousin, forerunner, he went ahead of Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. John sends some of his disciples and says to uh, says to his disciples, go check things out with Jesus. 
see if he is the one to come or if we're supposed to wait for another, uh, the one we are expecting. I, I put that on the screen because in, in Bible days, in Jesus' day, that was a technical religious phrase, the one who is to come or the one we are expecting. Uh, that was how people spoke of the Messiah. And John was saying, you know, Jesus, are, are you the one who is to come? Are you Messiah? That, that phrase is used twice, the, the one who is to come. You see, in Jesus' day, there were a lot of expectations for Messiah. Oh, when the one who is to come arrives, there will be peace. We will throw Rome off of our backs. We will find justice. When the one uh, who is to come arrives, we will have prosperity. We will have blessing. Generally speaking, the people in Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah, the one who is to come, but they were looking for a political, military Messiah who would take care of Rome for them, who would take care of the oppression, who would, who would take this cruel enemy and get them off of our backs to stop oppressing us. They wanted a Messiah to fit their politics. Don't we all? We all want a Messiah to fit our politics. But Jesus said back to John's disciples, I'm not going to fit in your box. I'm not going to fit in your preconceived notion of who Messiah is. I'm not going to just carry out your little wishes. You just go back and you tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the wretched of the earth have God's salvation, hospitality extended to them. Now, when you have time today, you go home and you look up Psalm 89 and Isaiah 35. Jesus is practically quoting from there some of those Messiah promises of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying to John's disciples is, the age of Messiah is dawning. I am bringing the kingdom of God. In me, the reign of God, the rule of God is breaking forth. It is a new day, but it is not the day you are expecting. I will not be the Messiah the way you are expecting me to be Messiah. But I am God's chosen one, and God's rule, God's reign has come. That's what Jesus was saying. But not in the way you expect. So you have to be watching for him. And that leads us to that last verse, verse 23. In the new RSV, it says, Jesus says, And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Blessed is everyone who's not repelled by me. He's saying, you're blessed if your preconceived notions about me don't keep you from me. You're blessed if you can let go of your preconceived worldview of how things ought to be, and you can humbly trust me. See, almost every time the kingdom of God is announced in the four Gospels, it's almost always coupled with repentance, a humility that says, I don't have the answers. God's going to do it in a surprising way. Almost every time the kingdom of God is announced, the kingdom of God is here, repent. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. And Jesus is saying, in this particular scripture, you're blessed if your preconceived notions don't cause you to trip all over everything. 
You're fortunate if all of these notions of me don't get you all tangled up. Let go of those. So repentance has to happen before we can receive the kingdom of God, before we can receive Jesus. That means repenting of sins, forsaking sins, but it also means repenting of our preconceived notions of what Jesus should look like and what Jesus should do in our lives and in our world. Repentance means we let go of our prejudices and our, and our ideas of how the world should be and we start trusting God to do it God's way. When I was in South Africa a few weeks ago, uh, a pastor from New Zealand was leading a workshop and he made reference to another believer and he wanted to communicate the fact that this believer was a real follower of Jesus. You know, here in the States we might say, that person was really born again or that person's a really sincere follower of Jesus. But this New Zealand pastor used a phrase, almost a throwaway phrase, uh, in passing that I'd never heard before. He said about this person, he was a solid repentant. He had repented solidly. And I thought, what an interesting way to describe a believer, a follower of Jesus, someone who has solidly repented, not just talked about it, not wishy-washy, but has really repented and turned to Jesus. Think about that phrase, the one who is to come. Do you realize this morning how blessed you are that in all of your groping and searching to find hope and forgiveness and joy, to find purpose in life, in all you're trying to find Jesus, Jesus has all the time been coming for you? Isn't that an amazing thought? That all the time you thought you were coming after Him, He's been coming after you to find you, to love you, to forgive you, to give you purpose, to give you hope, to give you meaning. And I want to tell you, one of the things I just love about Jesus, there are so many things about Jesus that I love, but this is one of the things that I really love about Jesus, is that He never forces us, He never coerces us, He never bullies us, He never backs us into a corner and says, you've got to do this or else. He always gives us choices. Because He loves us so much, He wants our choices to be free. When John's disciples come to Jesus, Jesus could have said to them, you know, just tell John to pay attention. Just tell him I'm aggravated that he, that he doesn't know I'm Messiah. Just tell him I'm offended. Tell him to straighten up or take a hike. But he doesn't do that. He just says, tell him what you've seen and heard. Tell him what you've seen and heard and let him make up his own mind and heart. And that's the way Jesus works with us. And by the way, speaking of, tell him what you've seen and heard, the Christian faith is extremely experiential. And, and I don't think some people get this. A lot of people think it's all mental and intellectual. If I read this and I understand it, then I will be able to trust Jesus. It's the other way around. I know some of you have doubts about the Gospels, doubts about Scripture, but, but you don't figure out Scripture in order to get to Jesus. Flip it around. Trust in Jesus, and then you're going to understand a lot more about Scripture. Because knowing Jesus is experiential. To know Him, to taste Him, to touch Him, to experience Him, to walk with Him. And when you begin to know Jesus, then Scripture starts making a lot more sense. And I have spent most of my adult life, I don't think I've ever gone a week that I haven't spent some time in the four Gospels in my devotional reading or sermon study. 
I'm not bragging. I'm not saying that makes me an expert. But I will tell you this as testimony. I have found and continue to find Jesus to be forgiving, loving, strong, and satisfying. And you can do that too if you learn to trust Him. Learn to trust Him. And then so much of the Gospels begin to make sense. But the, but the Christian faith is first of all a person, for it's a book. You know one of the reasons that I know that I'm in the right place as a pastor? One of the reasons that I know that I'm where I'm supposed to be serving Christ? And one of the reasons that I know this church has an exciting future? I'll tell you. Last Monday night, I was in deacons meeting. And we were dreaming and talking about Imagine If, this visioning process of leading our church into a new future. And I want you to know that I was excited what I heard the men and women talking about when they started talking about what it meant to know Jesus. And one deacon stood up and talked about, Imagine If, what would it be like to be lost without Jesus? What would it be like to wake up every morning and not have hope? to not have purpose? What would it be like to wake up every morning without Jesus and to be thoroughly lost and confused about your purpose in life? To wake up every morning and not know forgiveness of sins? To wake up every morning and not have a spiritual home, a church? And from that, the conversations just got richer. Because to imagine a world without Christ is to grow burdened and to say, this Jesus we know is worth sharing because He brings healing to all of God's creation. He fixes all that's broken in life and all that's broken in the world. And so, this morning, if I want to talk to you about getting your life right, if I want to talk to you about knowing God's Word, if I want to talk to you about getting on a straight path, there's a shortcut for all of that. There's a simpler way to say it. Just get to know Jesus. Just get to know Jesus. When you get to know Jesus, so much else is going to fall into place. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the light that you shine in our hearts. We thank you for the light of the gospel. And we ask you now to guide us into truth. Open our hearts. Open our minds. Amen.